is a podcast that goes behind castle doors to have real conversations with real people about solving the nation's toughest challenges. I'm one of your hosts today, Angie Fryermuth. And I'm Aaron Schneider. Today's guests are Doug Sims, the Program Manager for the Emergency Supplemental Program at Headquarters, Scott Mensing, the Senior Program Manager at Kansas City District, Chance Pittner, the Lead Engineer for the Kansas City Levies Program, and Brandon Moore, Supplemental Program Manager of the Huntington District. Thank you all for joining us here today. Hey, thanks for having us. Yep. Thanks for having us. For today's episode, we want to showcase a couple of the emergency supplemental projects um, and really just talk about the, the innovation and the ability of the agency to deliver those projects. But before we get into those discussions and details, we wanted to learn a little bit more about each of you. So starting with Doug, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your role with the Corps? Sure. My name is Doug Sims, and as you stated, I'm a program manager at headquarters, working for the last two years on the emergency supplemental program. I have uh, 20 years of experience with the Corps, a majority of which is project and program management related. I'm a certified project management professional, or PMP, and I also have significant environmental and cultural resources experience and am a registered professional archaeologist. Great, thanks. How about you, Scott? Hey, good afternoon. My name is Scott Mensing. I'm a, the QC Levies Program Manager here in the Kansas City District, and I've been with the Corps for a little over 12 years now. Um, I'm a civil engineer by trade and came into the Corps from the private sector, uh, did a lot of military design, uh, a lot of design in Afghanistan, then did civil works design on a couple of our local flood risk management projects, then became a civil works PM. Uh, was dam safety program manager here in the district for about three years and now serving as the senior PM for Casey Levies. Great, thanks. Chance? Sure, I'm Chance Bittner. I'm the lead engineer for the Kansas City Levies program, and I've been working in this position the last two years with a total of 18 years' experience with the Corps in total. And a lot of that, I've also been a project manager within civil works programs and uh, spent most of my time Aside from that, working in hydrology and hydraulics disciplines within engineering division. And I've worked all kinds of projects, flood risk management, ecosystem restoration, navigation projects, things of that nature. And Brandon. Yes, hi, thanks. So my name's Brandon Moore. I am the program manager for the emergency supplemental within Huntington District. I've been with the Corps about 12 years now, came up through the operations community. I've been in project management for about four years now. Also picked up my PMP about a year ago um, and have been involved in the emergency supplemental program for about two years now. Um, that's probably uh, like dog years, I would say, as far as experience goes with these aggressively project schedules. Learned a lot, enjoy the program, and I've given the, been given the opportunity to lead the Huntington District portfolio um, along with the teams. So we have several projects within the portfolio. I was prior to this position uh, the Town of Martin project manager and now we have Bluestone within the portfolio as well with Lower Mud. So we've got a lot of work there and, and really challenging ourselves and our teams to expedite project delivery because of the opportunities afforded via full funding on the projects. It's a good opportunity and great program to be involved with. I really look forward to talking through some of our challenges today. Thank you for those backgrounds. That really helps us better understand where everybody's coming from. And Aaron mentioned earlier, we're going to showcase a couple of the Corps' emergency supplemental projects today. However, there might be some of our listeners that don't even know what emergency supplemental is. And so I'm going to have Doug take a little bit of time to explain what an emergency supplemental is to our listeners. So, Doug, I'm going to turn it over to you. 
emergency supplementals, they tend to be things that are appropriated by Congress to address something that's considered very urgent, something that cannot be postponed until the next regular Appropriations Act, almost like a stopgap measure to get money flowing and work accomplished faster and earlier. We are fortunate enough to get two emergency supplementals, the Bipartisan Budget Act of 2018, or what we call BBA, and the Disaster Relief Act of 2019, or DRA, and a combined together, they total have a total value of about $20 billion. That's billion with a B. And that's to address all the disasters stemming from many uh, hurricanes, typhoons, and other major flood-related events. A lot of money was provided lump sum to the Corps, not done in the traditional incremental funding over years, but Congress said, hey, this is important. We're going to give you all this money at once. We need for you to get out there and execute this work. So therefore, it's not business as usual. The Corps is expected to execute these dollars in a very aggressive, expeditionary mindset while it's still incorporating and maintaining quality. These supplementals are considered almost, I would think, as pilot appropriations or pilot programs to show what you states and our partners, stakeholders, and industry can do when fully funded up front. I will drill down just real quick, Angie, if you, if you don't mind, to what BBA and DRA are, just so the audience listeners can understand the differences between the two. There are some similarities and nuances that are the same, but I'm just going to hit a couple of highlights on BBA. It was enacted 9 February 2018, included $17.4 billion for civil works, $1.8 billion for near-term repairs and emergency dredging, $15.5 billion for long-term investments in flood risk, coastal storm risk management projects in states and territories impacted by three Category 4 hurricanes, Harvey, Irma, and Maria or by two or more declared major disasters occurring in fiscal years 2014 through 2017. A big area, uh, when we take that, that one appropriation and that criteria, it was determined 33 states and three territories were eligible for the BBA funding. And out of that, just looking at the long-term side of the portfolio itself, we have a total of 39 studies that were approved and 58 projects um, that were identified to receive funding under BBA. All projects have to be funded to completion under these supplementals. It's not we're just going to fund the first part of construction or design and then go back to regular funding. It should be completed under these appropriations. For DRA, it was enacted in 6 June 2019 and had $3.2 billion in civil works money. Uh, 2.4 of it for near-term uh, repairs and $775 million for long-term. And this was as a result of all the damage that was caused by Hurricanes Florence and Michael, Typhoon Mankut, Super Typhoon U2, and Tropical Storm Gita. And out of that, we have six states and three territories um, that were determined to, uh, eligible for this appropriation. And on the long-term side of the portfolio, again, a total of 12 studies that are going on five projects that have currently been identified that we're going to fund to completion. Again, the biggest piece, of the big, biggest nuance that overlaps both of these, Congress provided the core full funding up front, not incrementally funded over multiple fiscal years, and now they want to see if we're going to be able to execute. 
Thanks, Doug. It's interesting that these are fully funded. I think that probably is something that every project team within the core would love to have seen, you know, getting all your money on time um, so you can deliver. Um, and, and now maybe even better, having it all up front so you can deliver. I think that's huge. One of the, the questions, you know, that came to mind is you had mentioned that there's there's two different ones out there. They covered, you know, it looks like the majority of the United States and a number of territories. And obviously there's a large number of studies and projects that were selected, but ultimately how did the core go about deciding which projects got funded for these? Because there's probably still more demand out there than there was uh, available funding. Oh, that's absolutely correct. It's often misunderstood that Congress specifically identified projects and appropriated specific dollars to these projects, but in fact, that's not accurate. Congress gave us the money and, and charged us, Army, and the administration, specifically OMB, to determine how these dollars would be applied within the constraints of the law and the implementation guidance. So to answer your first part, what the Corps did was we identified projects, but the administration actually selected and approved those projects to be included in each supplemental. We used specific performance criteria to identify these projects. Uh, some of those examples of that criteria would be, was the project within the area of the impacted named storm? Uh, what's the benefit cost ratio? What's the potential damage reduction and life safety provided by the project? Do they already have construction authority? Because neither VBA nor DRA provide construction authority, it provides appropriation. And you know, you have to take, have, have both to be able to do the work. And also, is there a willing and capable non-federal sponsor out there who wants to partner with us to get this done? So we had specific performance criteria. We had other criteria that allowed us to go out there. The, the MSCs, the major subordinate commands, our divisions, our districts, and canvas the entire existing portfolio. Look out there and see what is already ongoing, what is new start, what can be constructed, and what is the best benefit we can get for these federal dollars. Uh, like I said, it is a full vertical team uh, scrub, rack and stack that goes not only from the field all, all the way to, to OMB. Earlier, Doug talked about the supplemental and, you know, kind of told us what it was. However, he mentioned that it is a pilot-like project. And so, therefore, I'm just wondering if we follow traditional use-based project phases and timelines, or are we on a fast track? And are we using any innovative solutions to get these projects done? So, yeah, the KC levies came out of the FY18 BBA that Doug mentioned, and getting full funding up front has huge advantages, but the implementation guidance came with a huge push to be innovative and to accelerate delivery. And the FY18 BBA had a number of stipulations on, on trying to get out and complete these jobs as fast as possible, much faster than typical historical civil works projects. And so it has pushed the district to be much more innovative and, and look for opportunities to trim back time, to run certain activities in parallel, to try to look at all opportunities to pull these schedules to the left. So yeah, to answer your question, yeah, tremendous, tremendous efforts to look for opportunities to, to move faster and uh, but yet not sacrifice cost, schedule, or quality. Yeah, thanks. So I think kind of want to dig into that a little bit. You know, are you 
actually following the normal process or did you guys kind of get a, a blanket waiver here that says go fast and you can cut some corners here and there but document them so we can make changes or do you have to follow all the normal day-to-day -day operations that you would as a, a project delivery team? So, and, and Chance, feel free to chime in. You know, we did a, Chance wrote a, a detailed review plan and we're following for the most part the same core review processes, whether that's, you know, DQC, peer reviews, ATR, IEPR. We also did risk-informed design and we did semi-quantitative risk assessments during design that were reviewed by the RMC. So we really, not that I'm aware of, we didn't really cut any corners. We just tried to scrunch it all into a two-year duration. And definitely we, we went to hit all the typical milestones, but also recognize that normally we would have a pre-construction engineering and design phase in between feasibility and starting our design. In our case, we had to figure out how to get all that type of early work done quickly as fast as possible in the, in the beginning. So we were really looking for efficiencies and things that we could do to, to move the project along faster. And thanks, Brandon. You know, you were talking earlier about your lower mud project. Is Are you seeing the same thing going on there? You know, you're following all the, the normal process, just scrunching it down, and then, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about your project. Yeah, sure. So within the context of emergency supplemental, you know, we are certainly uh, pushing the envelope as far as running activities concurrent and being aggressive with our scheduling. Generally, uh, the requirements, regulatory requirements or internal policies, yeah, still definitely apply to our supplemental project. There is a process to pursue waivers within our chain of command, and we're encouraged to do, do so that those decisions have been uh, powered down as appropriate. We are looking for those opportunities in the context of, of the Lower Mud Project and more broadly through our portfolio. So within Lower Mud, so Lower Mud is the project, as I mentioned earlier, it's a uh, local protection project. It's on the Lower Mud River Basin. It is uh, was fully funded via BBA 18 at uh, $96.2 million. Was the Fed portion? This is a cost share project at 65.35. So, total buying power on that comes to about 148 million. And so, when we're fully appropriated, that is our budget. So we are mindful of that when we make our project decisions. It's centered around Milton, West Virginia. So as I mentioned earlier, population is about 2,600. It's a very flood-prone area. There's over 450 residential, 160 commercial structures that are located within the 500-year floodplain. Um, one important thing to, to think about with, with that area is March 97 was the flood of record, and it's a 27-year event, uh, which, again, you, you know, uh, it's a fairly short historical record, but that's a high-probability annual event relative to the historical record. And this caused over $23 million in damages at 97 price levels, $42 million in 18. So there was over 360 residential, 80 houses, 20 public buildings that were damaged during that event. So we have, via this uh, this funding level, we were afforded the opportunity to provide, you know, long-lasting protection to the area. Going back to your original question as far as how Lower Mud is kind of challenging the status quo or revolutionizing project delivery, primarily been centered, uh, focused on uh, real estate. One challenge often that a project will, a local protection project, a construction project will face uh, when you look at the long lead activities is real estate acquisitions. So, you know, we're challenged to deliver the project prior to 2024 completion date by our headquarters policy. 
So to do that, we had to uh, look at ways to compress real estate acquisitions within our schedule. And our primary method to do that is essentially what were progressive work limits on our contract award. So essentially the idea is that we've communicated groups of tracks, so six groups, and they're aligned with the construction sequencing. So first group is would allow the, the primary activities of the RE office and pump station work, and we progress out from there. What's different about it is it's one contract award, so it's not a conventional base plus option structure. So we would we since we're fully funded, we can invest that initial commitment on on the contract, and then progressively expand the work limits as that the real estate is acquired. That has some advantages associated with. Pricing, you know, the contractor can lean forward, and even if it's not in the work limits that's been uh, had notes proceed issued, they can do things like begin submittals, lean forward with material pricing, which we see as important in the uh, in the volatile market of today in COVID time. So, I'll stop there. There's plenty more to talk, but that's that's kind of one way that we are, and through that we've we've compressed our schedule um, with that initial award as opposed to awaiting until all the property is acquired by about 18 to 24 months. Thanks. Chance, I heard that you've been working on the Argentina and Armadale projects, and could you tell us a little bit about some of the design successes and really about how our staff is able to work alongside contractors to collaborate on design and get this work accomplished? Sure, yeah. The, the projects is actually three levy systems, Central Industrial District as well was included in there. But in, in total, about 17 miles of levy system and flood wall that we had to come through and design very quickly. So it required a lot of engineering resources. But some of the, the successes we had is just recognizing early that we, we wanted to retain some in-house design expertise as part of this. So we did have predominantly in-house design effort, but we also recognized that there's just so much work, roughly 28 million in total, that went to AEs as part of Kansas City Levy's design. We really know, knew we needed to move fast some of the successes we had included getting some alignment with our, our AE designers as well, making it feel like one team where they were involved in the process as, as much as possible. But we, we really sought to have integrated teams where some of these teams would even have Corps of Engineers designing some components and AEs others. So we really had to be careful on how we scoped that and worked it so that it was very clear who was doing what and the, the deliverables but we were able to work that in a way that the schedule was really compressed compared to what we, we originally thought we could do. Yeah, and Aaron, to add on to that, you know, Chance was hitting on the, the primary levy design effort. We also have a design build contract on three pump stations that we, we wanted to get money obligated as fast as possible when, when the FY team DBA came out going design build was kind of that was that opportunity. But we also have a small business AE support contract on two other pump station contracts and then the really large AE design support contract on the levy raises where it's a mixture. We have one, an in-house team that's doing one of the levy raises and then an AE team with embedded core staff doing two levy raises to where we're able to go out to the, the AEs are able to, to man up much faster than we can. RAE, for example, has offices nationwide. I think we were pulling from 15 different offices around, around the country. Um, at one point, we had over 250 designers 
working on the project. So as Chance mentioned, we couldn't we couldn't do this ourselves in the time that we had. So we looked at li literally every avenue we had to get people designing as quickly as possible. And everything, even from the, the drilling program through our surveys and everything, we started literally as soon as we possibly could. And we really prioritized. In some cases, we didn't even have real estate to drill what we needed to do, the geotechnical design, which drove everything else. But we, we prioritized all that by where you had real estate, what was the highest needs right then, right then, and now. And we're able to kind of just work through that, through the whole system, broke the entire design down, and, and really kind of talked all those issues across all three levy units and across all of our in-house and AE designers to be able to work all that and get it into a schedule that actually met where we had everything finished when we awarded last month our big contract. It seems like communication and regular engagement is certainly needed, especially when you're working right alongside a contractor to finish a project. And so can you talk a little bit about how you develop a relationship with the contractors or the members of your team um, and even maybe the establishment of a battle rhythm to ensure the lines of communication stayed open? And Scott, I'll go to you first, and then Brandon, I'd like to, to hear your thoughts on that as well. Yes, relationships are huge. When folks ask us why, you know, we've been pretty fortunate with Casey Levies and we've been pretty successful. We've, we've met some really aggressive schedules and we've come in under, or at least here in the near term, we, costs have been coming in well, we haven't sacrificed quality and it all comes back to relationships. And, you know, when, when we first started the project, the Kansas District set Casey Levies up similar to a mega even though it's not a truly defined mega, but the scale of it warrants it. And with that came chance in my position, which is a term position. But we set up a governance structure that included our in-house crew as well as our non-federal partners. And that really just set the tone for how we begin communicating in our battle rhythms where we were communicating with our non-federal partners literally every day for the first few months, and, and now we're to a point where we're once a week, once every other week. The communication was so intense early on because we had so much to bring in, but we were using every means methods, and, and thankfully it happened prior to COVID to where we were able to do face-to-face -face and we were able to establish those relationships and partnerships. And when we went into COVID and we went virtual, we never skipped a beat. And then that, that applied to our AEs as well, to where initially we had folks embedded in their offices for up to, you know, three, four, five days a week. Well, they began to know each other, you know, after six months working with each other when we went virtual, I mean, it, was, it became natural on how we were communicating. And so frequent communication, transparent communication, being honest, being upfront, asking for help, like just those simple skills the team embraced it and it paid off in dividends. So I can't stress it enough how critical that was to our overall success. And we spent a lot of time talking to AE firms and in industry before we entered into any contract as well. So we had a pretty good idea of the capacity out there to help us. And also we had a pretty good idea of, of who was really positioned to, to take it serious and help as well. But we really had weekly contact with AEs, both at a discipline lead level and also down into each individual design discipline, as well as project management meetings weekly with our leadership team, 
monthly meetings with a, a larger kind of higher level governance called our executive leadership team and on to quarterly for even higher yet level, but we had real frequent built in plus ad hoc work that we used to have that battle rhythm to keep the decisions moving forward on the project. Yeah, and one thing I'll add if we've got time, I feel we had the right people. When, the, when this project came to the district, the district made a conscious decision on who they were gonna put on it. This is gonna be a highly stressful effort. It's gonna come with a lot of criticism and a lot of oversight. And we needed to have folks that could take that, address it, handle it. And we also needed team members that could relate to others and work with others and, you know, again, be helpful, be courteous, simple things, but they're really important when you're working on a really stressful project that literally any problem that came up could have derailed our whole effort. And so having the right people on the team made a world of difference for us to allow us to get this stuff done. And Brandon, any thoughts on your end? Yeah, sure. So for our project, the Lower Month Project, our design was internal. So um, we were able to manage that effectively with our, with our internal team. Externally, as far as external relationships, really key to, to our project is our non-federal sponsor. And really, they're committed through our project partnership agreement and also the implementation guidance for uh, BBA 18 projects to uh, assume uh, large responsibilities or the, the responsibility to acquire the, pro uh, the properties needed for project construction. So when I talked about when I talk about uh, progressive work limits, you know, we really need our non-federal sponsor whose responsibility it is to complete those acquisitions to be really integrated into sequencing of the construction, how those work limits will be grouped, the prioritization of the tracks, what we want to go after first. You know, that may be a mix of okay, what is the tracks that we need for the first group, or what do we see as the more challenging tracks, which ones have relocation benefits associated with them. So that's some very close coordination throughout. And so that's an ongoing process. So we have uh, biweekly meetings dedicated to that and also uh, weekly meetings with the sponsor, biweekly with the, with the contractor that they've hired. That relationship is our non-federal sponsor. And also, too, kind of coming up with that plan, I mentioned earlier, it's a 6535 cost-shared project. So they're buying into that approach with respect to potential cost uh, reduction was key as well. So that's something that, that we've been very mindful of. Our project manager, Brian Lowe, and the entire team is integrating that non-federal sponsor into our approach, getting their feedback on the um, applicability or feasibility of, of dates that we put in the contract for acquisitions. So that relationship and that coordination is key to expediting our schedule through this approach and will be key going forward and we'll continue to, to kind of stay after that. Thanks, Brendan. We're going to stick with you here. I think, you know, Doug mentioned earlier that there's kind of like a pilot and, you know, with any pilot, you want to learn things. So my question for really, I'm going to start with you and then, you know, move on to Brandon and then finish with you, Doug, is that with this type of pilot, what are you learning here that we can apply to traditional delivery projects, things that we can do every day? So what are your biggest lessons learned and best practices that we can move forward and apply across the board? Okay. So I'll start with Brandon. Really, uh, it, to me, just generally, it's been amazing when faced with the challenge that you would have thought would have been kind of impossible or infeasible, 
when tasked with that, you know, I've been really impressed with and surprised by our teams to find ways to expedite project delivery. So we've highlighted lower mud here. There's been other examples and, and just without fail, our teams find ways to deliver and communicate risk up to leadership um, and being transparent about those, those risks and making risk informed decisions is a deliberate process. And I've learned through this that being aggressive with the schedules you know, challenging your teams to try to, to pull off the impossible. There are benefits there, and I think through this we've learned also the benefits of fully funding as, as Doug, full federal funding, as Doug spoke to earlier, you know, having that ability to, to really not be constrained by incremental funding, which has been a challenge at, at first. And I think we are, at times, we, we are realizing and reaping those benefits of full federal funding, and, and that's a challenge, right, is to show what we can do when we have that flexibility. All right, Scott, how about you? What are you guys seeing that as best practices that can be applied to, to normal delivery? We need about another 10 hours, I think, we could share with you uh, different best practices and lessons learned we've we've garnered over the last two years. You know, I'll echo what Brandon said. It, it's pretty amazing to see what folks can do when they're Put when they're given a pretty a task that could be seemed as impossible. I mean, Casey Levy's when when we first got the overall schedule and we looked at our scope and it was you know you had to take a step back and just take a deep breath because there there was a lot of work facing us um, and that was just two years ago. To consider how much we've gotten done, it's just a, it's a tremendous you know accomplishment by the by the entire team. But a kind of a few to hit on what we've talked about today. You know, Brandon mentioned risk-informed decision-making. That's something we fully embrace in all aspects of the project, whether that's technical, real estate, contracting, you, know, you name it. And we, we made risk-informed decisions on, on everything. It wasn't just, you know, this is how we do something. This is how we're going to do it. Um, we, we looked at all of our options. You know, we, we literally emptied the toolbox when it came to, design strategies, procurement strategies. It was probably the biggest lesson learned is just, you know, don't try not to get overwhelmed. Try to continue to chip away at it. Do what you can when you can, like Chance mentioned, you know, that we had like drilling was a was one of our most critical items and we got hit with the twenty nineteen flood right in the middle of our most critical drilling period. So we had to figure out what what could we do with high water and limited staff. And we, we figured out what we could do just to keep working, just to keep plugging away at it. That's probably one of the biggest lessons learned. But yeah, there's there's dozens that we could go through. Um, we look forward to trying to share to being able to share those in the future with the audience. But but yeah, don't empty your toolboxes. Don't don't just because you've done something one way for the last ten years doesn't mean that's maybe the right way to do it, considering the limitations of the particular project. Chance, anything you want to add? Yeah, one thing we we found is keep it as simple as possible when you're when you're attempting to move fast. We we came in with a pretty complex, you know, relative to what we finished with on our acquisition strategy. But through a lot of work and dedication, we were able to really simplify that. And every single contract you're putting out is a lot of effort to get on the street. So you know, that was one thing that really helped us in terms of risk informed design too. We had a, a group of engineers and project managers that were committed to both the schedule but at quality as well. So we really focused on the life safety components as well and how the, the project would function. And one thing I got asked a lot was like, 
would criteria, could you do a deviation on criteria and save some money? You can, potentially, but that's not going to happen quickly. So we, we did set up in some cases where we had some borderline things and we pulled in experts and talked about those and, and figured out if it was real risk or not. We developed from the flood to like how that levy would function at a, at a full load to see if that was actually a risk or not and plotted that to see if it interfered with risk guidelines. But by and large, our engineers were able to, to demonstrate that they met criteria with all the, the things that we were placing on the ground and that saved us a tremendous amount of time to show that we were gonna meet that criteria and that'll give us what we want in the end, which is a safe project that's gonna stand the test of time. Thanks, yeah. Doug, from the, the headquarters perspective, um, just kind of wondering what do you see as some of the best practices and what have we learned as an organization overall as part of these emergency supplemental programs and, and how are we gonna be applying that to our standard processes? So, Aaron, let me just throw out that we have over 90 documented lessons learned that have already been submitted by the field. Uh, we've shared that with the Revolution I team, and hopefully that information is going to be made available to the rest of the civil work side and, if appropriate, to the military side. So we are uh, learning as we build this plane in mid-flight. A lot of good information is coming out. We're also finding that maybe when Congress appropriating these dollars that you say perhaps wasn't, and maybe some of our partners weren't as ready as we thought to handle such an absolute massive workload. And that's, I don't want to ding us too hard. Obviously, I work for the Corps, but some of the things that we noticed were from contracting perspective, we did not have sufficient contracting tools in place to do design, which required us to stop, figure out where we were missing things, and then put those acquisition tools in place. Uh, we weren't able to borrow sufficient uh, capacity throughout the regions. So the tools that have now been put in place over the last year to two years have set us up not only to be successful for this supplemental, these two supplementals, but future supplementals as well. So taking something from the Boy Scouts, be prepared. Also certified costs. Something that we've learned is we don't usually do the correct battle rhythm. What our, our rules and regulations, our policies require us to do updated certified costs. So when we came into this program, we bought, brought a lot of project costs that weren't, had not been updated. They were old. These, some of these projects were on the shelf for years. So when we started dusting off those certified costs, we started realizing, while wow, there have been changed conditions, which has in turn impacted our cost growth as well as our, our schedules for execution. So what we're doing now is encouraging everybody to please get into the battle rhythm, do your certified calls every two years, update them after you've awarded a significant contract, make sure that you're staying on top of your cost. Huge, because that if we're within a finite amount of money, you know, you hear $20 billion, but that's a finite amount. And when you have projects that are a billion dollars each, you can, with cost growth through modifications and things of that nature, you can really eat at your existing risk reserves. So keep up on top of your cost. Make sure you have the contracting tools in place. The last one I'll throw out, like I said, we had 90, earned value management. Again, being a pilot, we said, okay, on well, the military side, earned value is something that's done on a regular basis. There are some divisions like LRD, where branding comes from, those guys incorporate EVM on a regular basis and are more experienced and more 
understanding of what it takes to do earn value management. Uh, because we knew that this would be sort of a shock to some of the Silver Works project managers, we did something called EVM Lite. And, and that's been a learning, growing experience as we've looked at trying to get people to understand the benefits of EVM. But first and foremost, you have to have good schedule, good budget, good scope to begin with. If you start off with things that are less than accurate, the tracking mechanism's not going to be very beneficial to you as you try to forecast execution. So as we move forward and as we continue to incorporate earned value management at different levels other than at mega studies, I think we're going to see that our project delivery teams are going to be able to do really good work with earned value management. So again, be prepared and then take the tools and things that you have learned as you move forward through the supplemental program and apply them to the future. And I, I think we're doing that here. And, and like I said, we're two years into this. And as we start awarding more and more construction contracts, I think we're going to start learning more and benefiting more from what we've learned now and what we learn in the future. Thank you, Doug, Scott, Chance, and Brandon for joining us today for this edition of Inside the Castle. We appreciate you and your insights. To our listeners, we want to hear from you. What topics are important to you and people you are interested in hearing from? Until next time, be safe, be innovative, and be revolutionary. To provide your feedback, email us at cw.infrastructure.team at usace.army.mil. Stay tuned for additional Inside the Castle podcasts as we explore life inside the core and revolutionize civil works together.